This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a special guest right here in the studio with us, Araceli. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. So could you introduce yourself? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is Araceli Rios, and uh, I currently work for Angels Grace Hospice. Uh, I am um, the clinical director. Uh, Started um, this position back in January, just right before COVID hit. So it's been a very interesting journey in these last, what, 10 months. (laughs) Yeah. So how has the COVID affected your transition to that important title? Um. It's been challenging, to say the least. Um, just trying to learn the position itself and learning how to manage. This is first time in management, so I've been a nurse for about 10 years now. Um, this is my first time in management and just trying to grasp that aspect of nursing. And then with COVID, it's, it's definitely had its challenges. For sure. We know what you're doing now, Araceli. Uh, What is your, how did, where did you come from? Let's put it this way. Where is your family? Um, So I was born in Mexico. Uh, I immigrated to the States when I was five. Um, My father uh, and my mother immigrated first. And then they, um, they went, well, my mom went back and got us, you know, from Mexico and we immigrated here. So um, we had to learn the culture, the language as everybody. And that in itself had a lot of challenges because both of my parents only spoke Spanish. Uh, So growing up, it was um, a little difficult, I'd say, but we picked it up pretty pretty quickly. I'm I'm, uh, I'm the second uh, eldest of six. Wow. So I have five siblings, there's three girls and three boys. Um, I'm the first one that had a child, um, the first uh, to graduate from college. Um, so it's it, it's been, I grew up in Chicago for about 20, the first 15 years. And then I moved out to the suburbs once I got married and started my family. So you've broken a lot of uh, ceilings within the family, the first to do something. Yes. I can imagine uh, how hard it was for your parents to leave you probably you were two, three years old, mm-hmm. to live in Mexico and to come here. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people hear about this immigrant struggle and they really don't know. What was it like for your parents? Uh, for uh, Particularly, I think for my mom was very, very uh, traumatizing. She couldn't stay out here that long uh, without her children. I mean, we were, it was three of us at the time. Um, my brother was four. I was probably three, and my sister was like two. And she left us with her younger sisters, who were teenagers themselves. They were 15, 16 years old, you know, to take care of us there. Mm. You know, and they just kind of came out here to looking for a better life for us. 
So where in Mexico were you born? Uh, I was born in a little, well, it's not little, actually. It's a, it's a big uh, town called Tasco in southern Mexico, like three hours south of Mexico City, which I'm going there next month, by the way. Oh, oh. nice. Yeah. So um, how was it for the family, the entire family, that your parents are here and you're left with your uh, siblings in Mexico? How did the family process that? Did, it, and, uh, did everyone just pitch in to help you? Um, I, you know, it, I was so young. I just remember, um, I just remember my aunts taking care of us in certain situations. Uh, but I did know that there was struggles because I, I heard them on the phone talking to my mom and when are you coming home? When are you coming back for these kids? You know, they're trying to live their lives and they're trying to work and trying to go to school at the same time, trying to raise three toddlers. I mean, that was really difficult for them. Um, so I hold them dear to my heart and I visit them every year. And I'm very grateful that they took us on and they took care of us for a few years that my parents were here. It sounds like this if this whole situation has uh, guided you to this position that we're talking to you about. Yeah, I I never really knew what I wanted to do. As soon as I graduated from high school, I went straight to college, but didn't really know what I, I kind of wanted to do journalism, quite honestly, because that was the thing back then in the 90s with the movies and the filming and everything, I, I just fell in love with it. And then um, after two years, you know, uh, the expenses with college and, you know, everything was pretty much on my own. I had to do everything on my own as far as college goes. So I took a few years off and married and had my children. And then I went back to school. And um, my sister-in-law, who's a uh, also a registered nurse, she said, you know, you're very caring. You're very kind to people. She uh -huh. said, you should go back into nursing school. And I said, you know what? I never, th I thought about it once, but it never really, I never really got started that mm. journey on that journey. And then when my uh, son was born, when my second son was born, I said, let's do it. And that's when mm. I went back to school. What triggered that with the second birth? Why is it that all of a sudden like the light went on? Um, because I always had a dream of finishing college. That's good. So my goal was always to be, to inspire my family, my siblings, as being one of the older ones. I always wanted to, my siblings to look up to me and to say that it's possible to have goals and have dreams and actually fulfill them. And me in high school, I was always pretty good in school. And I always liked school. I know a lot of kids don't like school, but I, I did. I enjoyed learning stuff. Yes. Um, and so that was, my thing was to finish school and have a career. That's what I wanted. My husband and my mom were actually my biggest supporters, helping me with the kids, helping me study, the, him taking them to the park so I could study, uh, getting up early. My mom always there. I don't think I could have done it without them. I mean, having two toddlers and trying to get through nursing school was very challenging as well. <laughs> I can imagine. We always like to ask our uh, our guests about their spiritual background. Yeah, so, so... What was your spiritual background? So I'm Catholic. Uh, my grandmother was actually a big... Um, she had a big faith. Uh, and she... Although I didn't get to have that relationship with my grandmother... Uh, growing up, because we were always here in the States, we really couldn't afford to go visit her. Uh, but as I got older and I had my first son, every year I would start to go visit her. So this has been like 20 years. But unfortunately, you know, she passed away six years ago. 
um, I ended up bringing her to the States to visit three times the last three years of her life. Uh, boy, did she love this. <laughs> she said, this country is gorgeous. It's beautiful. And she was just in awe of the buildings and everything. She she just loved it over here. She said, everybody's so nice over there and friendly. And <laughs> God, That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember one time I took her to um, a facility that I was working at. And um, I... I you know, I was working with dementia patients, and she, I took her to visit, and she was praying with every single patient, and I'm like, Grandma, <laughs> I was like, you just have to say hi, and she's, she's, you know, uh, uh, yeah, she's praying with them, and she's doing the rosary with them, I'm like, Grandma, I'm like, they don't even understand what you're saying, because it was in Spanish, and they, they were just looking at her. Deeply spiritual. Oh, she was so sweet. She was so proud of me. She she was I was her pride and joy. I mean, she would just tell all her friends and my granddaughter and <laughs> she was just so happy for me and she she said, "Oh, you have a, such a lovely home and a lovely family and I want you to have more kid more kids." And I said, <laughs> "Grandma, like three's enough. It's <laughs> okay." But yeah. The uh this whole story of your life uh it's it is filled with such emotion. Uh, when you graduated with your degree in nursing, did you directly go into hospice or did you do something mm -hmm. else first? I did something. My goal was to always go into a hospital setting and work there. Um, and I got my first opportunity. I got hired right away after right after I graduated um, at a, a facility that I was working for. So, um, but I wanted. I wanted, even though um, um, geriatrics is very dear to my heart and patients with dementias particularly, um, and I kind of didn't want to stray away from that because I do care about end of life. And um, I think, I don't know, I always felt that nowadays, I don't know if it's just me, but the elders sometimes... I, I just don't feel that it's that they're maybe it's my background. Um, we mm -hmm. we hold our elders very high, mm. and we take care of them yeah. till the end. Yeah. So even though there's nursing homes out there, it's not really they're not like here. It's a little different. Um, so they always, I always had a special place in my heart for them. Um, and then I just it just it just happened that. Uh, somebody approached me and asked me if I was interested in working for hospice. And I said, uh, not really, but I can interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can interview. And then I did. And the first, uh, remember my first uh, patient that died, I took the job. And I said, oh, I'm just going to be here for a little bit. And I'm just going to keep applying at the hospital. And then the first patient hit me so hard. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. Um, How long were you with the patient? Um, not long, but just seeing the, the, the family and the heartache and the, and the daughters and sons just crying at bedside just broke me. It broke my heart. And I will never remember. I will never forget that feeling. And I said, you know what? This is where I'm supposed to be. It didn't make, <laughs> it didn't make you run. No. It just brought I, you closer. Yeah, it brought me closer, and I got, um, you know, after that, obviously, I think I had to, I had to go through that. 
it wasn't so much the pain, it's what I could do for them at the mm. end mm. and how I could ease their pain, ease yes. their joy, help them, educate them, and teach them about end-of-life care so that yeah. they, even though they're grieving and they're crying, it's something that's beautiful too. Yes. So. Well, in your culture, you also celebrate the dead. Yes. And <laughs> that's <where> I'm going. <laughs> the Day of the Dead. I'm 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 going to Mexico for the Day of the Dead celebration. Oh. <laughs> I'm in awe of that. I mean, I would that would be very interesting to be part. It'll of. be different though with COVID, but I've always wanted to go during that specific time. I didn't know if that that the celebration of the of the dead was something that also added to your understanding of being in hospice. Um, I think so. We, I mean, the Day of the Dead is a big thing over there. Oh, absolutely. I'm- I've you know, seen it's so pictures. how do you celebrate? I mean, you say it's a big deal. Could you give our audience yeah, some, when yeah. you go to Mexico on the day of the dead, what happens? Well, I haven't personally been there, but I hear the stories. But yeah. in my house, we have an altar that we do yes. for our deceased ah. and yes. a candle. And we light it up and we put their favorite things, their favorite breads, their favorite drinks, their favorite foods. And we gather together and we celebrate and we pray and we celebrate their life pretty much. And they say that the souls come the Day of the Dead, that the souls come and visit us the Day of the Dead. and What a wonderful view yeah. of, of, of death. Yeah. And when everybody else tends to think of it as being dark and scary. And no, it's, no, it's quite a celebration. Yeah, it's and a I celebration. Wish, and I wish that we all could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every year. They, we do it every year. We celebrate them every year. Yeah. With that, we'll <laughs> take a little break and we'll be right back. Angels Grace Hospice brings comfort, dignity, and peace to help people with a life-limiting illness live every moment of life to the fullest while providing support for loved ones. We perform hospice care in your home, nursing home, or assisted living community, depending on your individual circumstance. For more information, you can check us out at www.angelsgracehospice.com or you can call us at 1-888- 444-8341. To comfort always, this is our work. I'm Sole Bam and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Araceli, could you tell us why you love hospice? Um, well, as I mentioned before, I, I just love that education piece, educating the family about symptoms and comfort and peaceful and dignified death uh, that their loved ones or everyone I think deserves. Um, and just being able to supply that to someone means a lot. Uh, making them um, com- comfort. It, I guess it's comforting to know that, okay, this is this is normal mm-hmm. for my loved one and not so scared. Yeah. And for them to be not so much okay with it because nobody's really okay with dying, right? True, true. But for them to be accepting. Yeah. Accepting of what's going on and know what's going on, know what's gonna what's gonna happen or what's expected, and know that we're gonna be there to take care of them, to um, to ease their pain, um, and we we just have we have an amazing team. We have an amazing team that um, whether you need um, you know symptom management, your your nurse is there. Um, whether you need help with, you know, taking care of uh, of your loved one for um, to help them shower, give them a bath, we have someone there. 
um, whether it's in the middle of the night and you, you know you, your your loved one is, is struggling to breathe or is having a lot of pain, we have someone there. Hmm. You speak of the being there and whatnot. You went through nursing school and you were told that I have to heal this person. Yeah. And you really, you know, you wanted to be in the hospital where you felt that you wanted to do all you could for that for yeah, that, saving for that lives. patient. That's right, save a life. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile this now that you're in hospice? Well, when, you know, there are the the nurses and the doctors that are saving lives, but when there's not a life to save, who's going to be there to take care of that person, right? If there's no other options or no other um, curative treatment or there's no other, um, you know, there's no more radiation, there's no more chemo, um, what, what do you do then? Do you just not take care of them? That's where we come in. How do you then educate your your patients that you've had? How did you educate their families on when we know we've been there when they, what are you going to do for my loved one? We want them better. We want them to be able to walk again. We want them to be able to uh, eat again, yeah, breathe better. And you're going in there with a understanding of what's happening and then they're we're not always on the same page. Yeah, no, we're not on the same page. How do you? How have you handled that? I mean, it's it's always our goal and our plan of care is always patient based. It's what the patient wants. So a lot of the times, patients have already, you know, wrote their wills, written their wills, um, has a DNR, and don't want cure. No more further aggressive or curative treatment. And we. I know some of the families are still struggling to accept that, but we just go and support them and support the patient and try to find a middle ground. Uh And I always tell them, you know, let's take it day by day. If your loved one wants to eat today, maybe today will be a good day. Maybe your your loved one will want to walk today, go for a walk, go for a drive, go to, you know, get her hair done or Mm -hmm. do something, um, play cards, whatever they enjoy doing. You might have some good days, but there will be days where they just want to sleep and they just want to be left alone. Hmm. Have, have you ever had the experience where your patient will come up, will, will say to you, you know, nurse, Araceli, I've had enough of this, but I know my parent, my, my, not my parents, my, 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 my spouse or my children are having a very difficult time. Uh, I know you would bring in someone to help you. I would think, to talk about that, to try and get a family meeting together. Yeah. Have you had those experiences? Yeah, we've had those experiences on, and we've we've had, you know, patients that, um, although they voice their, their wishes to us, mm-hmm. they don't want to <laughs> say it out loud to their family <laughs> because right. they feel like they're going to think I'm giving up on myself and how exactly. selfish of me, how mm-hmm. selfish of me to take that joy away from them, which is me, right? Yeah. And um, that's where we bring in our psychosocial team um, to help us and be that middle ground and be that uh, resource to them to help them and guide them and make them understand. Um, but it, ultimately, it's it's 
what the patient wishes. Mm-hmm. That's what we're yeah. there for, for the patient. Yeah. So you don't try to do it all yourself? No, no. We have a whole team. We have a whole team to help us. We have our chaplains. You guys are awesome. Uh, we have our social workers that uh, call our families and sometimes talk to them for hours. I can't imagine. But, uh-huh. um, it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, we just have a lot of resources to help us. We're not alone. What are the joys of hospice? I know you've shared some of the things, educating the family, walking alongside people, providing comfort. But for you, what joys do you find personally working in hospice? Um, The joys that I find um, are to ease the suffering, I think. Mm. So when whether it's spiritual or whether it's physical or whether it's emotional, um, just to help ease that suffering is a it brings me comfort and brings me joy to yeah. know that um, that we helped this gentleman ease his pain, mm-hmm. you know, or to help this family understand end of life. That brings me peace, um, yeah. and 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 you get and you feel like you don't do that. But then you get the calls or you get the letters and it's like you didn't think you did anything. Yeah. You're just, well, I just did my job. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I like that part where you said uh, easing somebody's suffering. I remember many years ago I was working for a hospice in Chicago and uh, this guy was in consistent pain. And they kept increasing uh, the pain medications, but it wasn't helping. Until he told the nurse, can I talk to the chaplain? So the nurse called me, <laughs> then <laughs> I called him. I said, um, what time do you want me to come and visit? He said, no, don't visit. I just want to talk to you over the phone. I said, but I'm free. I can come. <laughs> <laughs> it's better face to face. He said, no, I just want to talk over the phone. So the pain was actually some. He had done something, you know, many years ago, 50 years ago that he got away with that if he was caught, he would have ended up in jail for so many years. Mm. He got away with it. And now that he's dying, he's asking, will I go to heaven? And uh, so when I told him, you know, the God you serve is a forgiving God, and he confessed, I said, God has forgiven you. You know, the pain went away, and two days later he died. So I agree with that. Uh, concept of, you know, the joy of easing somebody's suffering. Yeah. It's really powerful. It always gives me the, uh, the you, you really hit me right between the eyes when you were talking about how you look at your patients and how you were would say, you know, your main responsibility in my mind, this is just my mind now, Araceli, not anybody else's where your main responsibility is to do everything medically that you can for this person. And it's refreshing to hear you talk about doing the evaluation of the entire bo- of the entire person. And that's the person. and that's the whole thing about hospice in my mind is that the nurse who does the most contact with our patients needs to be quite flexible and understanding of what else they need. And I wonder sometimes if the newer hospice nurses recognize that and all they worry about is their 
symptoms. Symptom physical, management. Yeah. Physical symptoms. Because that story that Saul just told us about the, the emotional, the spiritual pain this man was in, I believe that is very, very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is very real, and I think everything comes when you're in uh, in your last days, months, weeks. Um, I think you start reflecting a lot on on the things that you did, the things that you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think hospice is not so much the end of your life, but it's just it's just. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True, you know, and let me live it. Let me live to the fullest every day, and each each and every day. So, what have you found to be the challenges of working in hospice? Um, I <laughs> I have to say it's it's those families that cannot come to an agreement. It's the dynamics, really, mm-hmm. between yeah. mm-hmm. family members and. Um, what their wishes versus the patient's wishes versus my sister's wishes versus my mom's wishes. Um, and that can really hinder what we do. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. Hi, I'm Joe Newton. Thank you for coming back and listening to our podcast this morning. We're still here with Araceli Rios. Uh, you spoke very lovingly of your grandmother in our, in our time together here, Araceli. And you, during our break, you gave us a little information about what, what, what happened with your grandmother and when she died. And I, we're just curious if you'd be willing to share us with that with us. Yeah, so um, my grandmother, she was in Mexico and she started having symptoms. She had abdominal pain and um, uh, she had some bleeding going on. And um, by the time she went to the doctor, they had found a mass and they had sent her for, for biopsy. And and then she ended up uh, in a lot of pain. So she went to the hospital and they said they were going to um, have to do emergency um, surgery. So I flew there. I was already working for a hospice. I probably have been my third year. And I was there for about, I want to say, a week. Um, but within that week, um, I don't think that they really embrace hospice there so much like we do here. Mm. And that to me was very sad because it was everything. What can we do? What can we do? So I get there, she comes out of surgery, um, and, and um, you know, I see her. I'm a nurse. I see her. She's not doing well. Yeah. I say, hey, she's not doing well. You know, her sats are low, but her's some oxygen. She's so confused. I had, mind you, I had just come off the plane in three hours drive, driving to my town, um, and I went straight to the hospital. Didn't even eat anything, just went straight there. And um, finally, like around 10 o'clock at night, I, I said, I got to go get some sleep. I mean, I had been flying since 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm. So I went there, got, I went home, got some sleep. My mom and I drove back to the hospital in the morning, and they were already taking her out for another surgery. 
And I said, wait a second. <laughs> like, Let me talk to the surgeon here. What's going on? I knew she was not doing well last night because I was there and I assessed her. Mm. And um, they said, well, you know, the, uh, her her stoma's not doing good. We think she still has some um, uh, some bleeding and we have to go back in. And I said, wait a minute. My mom, my grandma's 85 and she's got, she, her lungs are not that greatest. I said, is she going to be able to survive this other surgery or can we just do something different? And I'm... I didn't want to jump the gun to hospice and to like end of life care or anything like that, but I knew how critical my grandmother was. Mm-hmm. And I said, do we really want to do this? I mean, it was like split second. We had to make a decision because they were taking her. So they ended up taking her and my grandma went, to, went into a coma. My, my grandma never woke up from that coma after that surgery. And she died um, when I arrived here to the States. I got, I got home probably like around 8 o'clock at night. At one o'clock in the morning, my mom called me and she had passed away. And it was just, it was traumatic because the whole week that I was there, I was basically living in the hospital um, and talking to the doctors, trying to get answers. And they're doing their thing, they're they're looking at, I mean, she's got all these tubes on her. Mm. You know, they're feeding her, they're doing TPN feedings. They, you know, she, they're going to do a trach on her. They're going to start doing um, dialysis. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wow. Why? Is this necessary? Yes. Why? What is my grandmother's prognosis? Mm. What is her life going to look like Mm. when she comes out of this? She's going to have no quality of life. I said, no. And she's still in a coma. I said, no, absolutely not. I said, just take her off of everything. I said, I just want her to be comfortable. And the problem is there that they wouldn't let you see her, which is what I feel like. They would like just one person in at a time for like maybe 10, 15 minutes at a time because mm-hmm. she was in the ICU, mm-hmm. which brings me back to how our families now are suffering, not being able to be there for their loved ones at end of life mm-hmm. or while they're in the hospital, in the OR, yeah. and they can't go in because of COVID. I mean, that just breaks my heart because I was there. It's it tough. was me. Yeah. So the concept of hospice is not uh, accepted? Uh, not the- as not as they don't embrace it like we do. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think they have the education um, yeah. sometimes, uh, especially in like smaller towns, to say, okay, I'm not going to send my 95 year old grandma into surgery. Yeah, for what? Exactly. And my, you know, we've had discussions about educating and all that, and I think that a lot of it starts with the doctor. And, understand, mm-hmm. and and educating them on what it is that, you know, they have, they make that that Hippocratic oath where they're going to do everything they possibly can, but there's a point. Yeah. There's a point, and you've witnessed it, and of course you've lived it. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk more, if you would, about this COVID thing, this pandemic, and I sense I see your emotion with it, and yeah. and it is really personal. It's yeah, well, because I like I said, I wasn't there. And the, the week that I was there, I only got to see her 15 minutes at a time every day. Mm. And I had to park myself in the hospital so that when they called me, I can go they in there, there. Right. and talk to the doctors and talk to the surgeons. And everybody was putting their trust on me. Well, she's a medical person. So you oh, talk absolutely. to them. Yeah. I, I don't know what they're saying. They're, they're telling me stuff, but I, I don't know. Mm. Whatever they're telling me, I'm doing. Mm. Whatever they're telling me, oh, this we're going to do this. Oh, okay. Well, mm. not really. 
No. You shouldn't just accept everything that they tell you that they're going to do because it's what you want to do. You have to lead your own care. That reminds me of where I come from in Africa. Uh, people really trust the doctor, whatever the doctor says. So they do not even verbalize their opinion, whether they agree with it or not. They just say yes. Mm-hmm. So when you were there, I think your family felt like... They put their lives in their on, hands. Yes. Literally. Yeah. yeah. So did, did your mother understand your perspective? She did. Okay. She did. And my so did my aunts. I spent all the and you know, these are the ones that took, you care, know, of you. took care of me when yeah. they were and my my younger aunt, you know, the one that was fifteen and she she's only twelve years older than I am. <laughs> she took it very hard. Very, very hard to this day. She has a hard time going to my grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. She I she was I think she was a moderate risk. For yes. bereavement, for that, sure. She had very, a very good yeah. observation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, how has the pandemic affected um, you? You work in hospice leadership. How has the pandemic affected hospice? Oh, just it's it's just been such a difficult journey mm. since the beginning. Mm. Um, just trying to get in there to see our patients, trying to um, overcome those obstacles and uh, facilities, shutting shutting the doors to pretty much everyone, um, and then trying to, trying to um, take care of your patients by video call and... That just sounds ass- so ridiculous. Assessing them and yeah. how can you... How can you do that? Not in hospice. Maybe if you just go, you know, if you do a telehealth visit with your doctor, you know, you're talking, you're telling them how you feel, you're telling them your symptoms, but our patients are not. Some of our patients can't talk to us and tell us what's wrong with them. Exactly. Especially some, some of them don't even know what a video call is. So mm-hmm. it just makes it very, very difficult. Yesterday I went to a patient. I visited a patient in the facility yesterday afternoon and had a wonderful time with the family and a wonderful time with the patient who was uh, becoming pretty active. And the strangest conversation I had was afterwards when I called our nurse. And she says, you know, Joe, I can't go in there. And I'm like, you mean I got in there before her? And and she just felt, I can I could feel her feeling so out of control yeah. because that's how you nurses are. You're very yeah. in control. Yeah. And she was like, okay, tell me what you saw. Tell me what you did. Tell me what, tell me what was going on. <laughs> and Be I, my eyes. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I told her what was going on so that she could contact the facility. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, I, t- I also talked to the nurse there, and they responded like immediately to what was I saw what was going on. Yeah. So uh, so you feel like the pandemic, like Joe said, has handicapped some of the hospice staff. Yes, from definitely. being efficient in providing mm-hmm. comfort mm-hmm. care. Yeah. So how has your hospice overcome this? Um, so our wonderful company um, has been, we've been able to get uh, testing weekly for our staff so that we can um, show our you know, COVID test results to our facilities uh, so that they will allow us in. Um, Our company has provided us with PPE. Um, Since the pandemic started, I mean, we've had to pay a lot of money for it, but um, our safety is our number one priority for our staff. 
and we've supplied um, every one of our staff with PPE so that they can um, stay safe out there. At this point, you just don't know. So I think everybody just has to be um, more precautious. And so we've done a pretty good job, I think, at um, keeping our staff as safe as possible. Araceli, what has the pandemic taught you about yourself and about hospice care? Um, that we have to be innovative because right now this is, I think this is going to be the thing for a long time and we have to find ways to uh, to stay ahead, um, to stay ahead, to take care of as many people as we could. Um, you know, if it has to be televisits and it's televisits, if we can get in there, we'll try. Um our home patients, uh, luckily, we're, we've been a, we've been blessed that we've been able to to see them more and take care of them. Um, as a leadership, I think um, just uh, looking into how everybody else is doing things and how efficiently uh, other hospices are are working together to to continue to do what we do, which is to comfort. Hearing the nurses that I've heard to and talked to about this, some of the struggles and frustrations that I see that happen uh, is, you know, everything changes daily. How do you kind of, that's just one of the struggles. I mean, I, I, I hear the, the facilities say that they put up their expectations of what to allow people in. They're screening and, and of course, there's, <laughs> and whatever they're changing every week too, because. And now the one I hear of is that you got to bring in with a COVID test, and the other one is that you can't have been in a in a COVID supposed COVID facility for two weeks before you can get back in. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that happened with with uh, one of our nurses at the Villas facility I visited yeah. yesterday. How are the How are the nurses and you handling these struggles and frustrations? It's, jug- it's a juggling game, pretty much. Okay, mm-hmm. have you been? Where have you been? Okay, can you make this visit? I mean, oh, it's yeah. been like that since day one. Okay, what well, what facility? And this is us on the phone, um, calling facilities, administrators, uh, director of nursing. Hey, what can my nurse come in and see her patients? Um, or when can she come in? Or where has she been? And it's just been just chaos since the get go. And how are they? How are how are the nurses doing? How are you doing with it? Frustrated. It's 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 very frustrating, but um, I think we've kind of grown stronger, maybe um, more. Not sure if more united is the word, but we've kind of had to deal with it, and it's kind of made us like grow a little bit more in our positions. How can uh, chaplains who are listening around the country and maybe the psychosocial team? How can they come alongside the hospice nurses and offer support? I think just reaching out to the nurses, um, doing, I know sometimes they're, they're, I mean, it's hard already for them to get in and to see their patients. Um, but we've, we've asked our nurses, if you feel that a prayer is needed to your patient, please reach out to them and just, let them pray for the patient over the phone. Put uh-huh. it on speaker, put it next to the patient. And do that for them because sometimes that means a lot to them. I mean, some, some patients have dementia and they don't remember anything, but they remember a prayer. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. They're there. The dementia patient is there if they can hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, like you've articulated throughout this interview, hospice is intense. <laughs> How do you take care of yourself? Um, I, my children, I think, are a big uh, part of my life. Um, my husband, we try to go out to dinner at least once a week by ourselves and just kind of unwind a little bit, vent, um, that kind of thing. Um, baseball. Uh, for me, my son plays baseball, um, you know, that on the weekend. So that's kind of always nice. It just kind of something that takes your mind off of work. You got to get away. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I go, I go to Mexico every year. That's, that's always nice um, to go see my aunts um, that take care of me. <laughs> I see them every year. Um, Do you take your family or just you? Uh, sometimes I take, um, sometimes it's me and my spouse. Sometimes it's like this, this time around, it's just my mom, my sister, and I that are going. So it's us three. A girls weekend. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. My mom will be there a little bit longer, but my sister and I will just be there for a little under a week. That's awesome. Yeah. Any more questions? I have no other questions, but I want to thank Araceli for being willing to share her, her time and her spirit and her uh, story with us today. Thank you very much, Araceli. Thank you for having me. That was Araceli Rios. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. <laughs>